Well, whether it did, there we go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. It was a little delayed there. We are in Matthew chapter five. So grab your Bible. If you don't have one and you're here, there are Bibles on that back table back there by the door. Matthew five, six and seven is the Sermon on the Mount, considered the greatest sermon or speech ever given in the history of humanity. It's an amazing speech. It starts with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, that kind of thing, the meek. In any case, now we've come through to verse 25 or so. Just to review, verse 20 is one of the key verses in the whole Sermon on the Mount. Look at it for a second, chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses or is greater than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. They were the people the Jews thought were ultra-holy the most righteous. So this is a shocking thing for him to say, but they were all about showy righteousness on the outside, not in the heart, not in inside. Um, Jesus goes through a series of six Old Testament commands or laws. Um, the first one is in verse 21. You've heard that it was said long ago, you shall not murder and so he takes a commandment and then he takes it to its logical conclusion, which they weren't doing. And he says that it's not just the act of murder. Murder starts here and here in the heart and in the mind. So if you call somebody an idiot or a fool or hate somebody or are angry with somebody, that's the start, the seed. Remember, we talked about getting rid of all the oak trees in Madera County. You got to get rid of all the roots and you got to get rid of all the acorns. Well, an acorn of murder is that anger, that hatred, that superiority feeling kind of thing. So he's taking these laws of the Old Testament, not throwing them away, but making them even a higher standard and interpreting them in, in view of the new covenant Christianity. Um, and it has to do with the attitudes and intents of the heart, not just what you do with you know, your life kind of thing. Uh, I want you to notice, I forgot to mention this last week, that all of this section is dealing with sin, murder and adultery and a bunch of other things, lying we're going to talk about tonight. You gotta, if you're going to share the gospel with somebody, you can't ignore the sin problem. You have to let them know what the problem is so that they will take the antidote, if you will. Um, so let's jump in. Uh, let's see. So, so that I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Good. And those of you on Zoom, say amen. I see an amen sign there. Beautiful. Oh, and I'm thrilled to see. I think that's Alan. Is that you, Alan? Yes, I see the I see the wave. Wonderful. Okay. Chapter five of Matthew, verse 25. <laughs> yeah. Um Settle matters quickly. Well, let's read 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, an interpersonal conflict is occurred, has occurred, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. That's surprising because you would think, well, the important thing is the gift to the Lord these horizontal relationships with other people, that's secondary. He's saying, no, no, get that straightened out, then bring your gift. Romans uh, chapter 12, 
I'm looking for it in my notes here. Romans 12, 18 says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all, says men, it means people. As much as it depends on you, make the effort to build the bridge kind of thing. Now verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. So this is a a portion of scripture about unresolved personal disagreements, conflicts between people. The easy way out is, oh, I've got something against her, so I'm just going to never see her again or talk to her again. I'm just going to cut her off, and she's going to cut me off, and that's great. It's not great. It's still unresolved. Those things have a tendency to fester inside of her and me if we have a conflict, and it's going to make both of us uh, unhealthy, maybe, and unhappy, and not able to focus as we should. So this is a sort of an anger thing. It doesn't, he doesn't go into details about it. Just settle matters. 25 and 26 are talking about somebody suing somebody else. First Corinthians, which we studied not too long ago, has a chapter about that. I think it's six, but I can't remember. In which it says, Christians should never be suing each other. We're brothers and sisters. We ought to be able to come to our church, to the elders. Let's work out this conflict. What we're saying is we're going to a higher authority, the public courts, the civil courts, as opposed to letting God's people work it out among brethren. So he's stressing here the need for the sooner you can get it fixed in the relationship, the better. There is no mention here of Uh, is the person, let's say we got Harold here. I always make up Harold, right? Harold is suing me, let's just say. There's no mention as to whether I am the guilty party or not. Maybe it's a frivolous lawsuit and I'm not guilty, or maybe I am guilty and he's got a real case against me. Either way, what he's saying applies. And he's saying, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court, verse 25. Do it while you're still together on the way or... It might not go your way. That's my translation. Your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer, and you might be thrown in prison. He's saying deal radically with personal um, conflicts, even to the point, and I know this doesn't sit right with me and probably not with you, even to the point where let's say on the one hand, if it's if I'm guilty and I do owe him $500, it would be better to just pay him and make the matter go away. But let's assume the worst, that he's suing me, and I, it's a, a frivolous lawsuit. I don't owe him anything. He made the whole thing up, and now we're going to court. Most of you know the courts don't always make the right decision. And so he's saying, regardless, even if you're wrong, even, I'm sorry, even if you're in the right and don't owe him money, just settle and make it go away. Yes, but that's my hard-earned money and if that is your priority, he's saying, you got a problem. It's more per- important that the personal relationship gets mended. Um, so back to the text, um, 
He's saying it could go the wrong way. They hand you over to the judge, hand you over to the officer. You're thrown into prison. Do you see that? You say, now, wait a minute. Prison sounds like you murdered somebody or killed his you know, sister or somebody. This is what the Jews had, which was, listen, debtors prison. Those who owed more money than they could pay. Now let's make it, I somehow owe him $25 million. Last time I checked, we would be a little short of that number in our checkbook. Actually, we'd be a lot short. So in that case, in that culture, I would go to debtor's prison and work at the prison until I paid off the 25 million, which if you're a mathematician, you can figure out it ain't gonna happen in your lifetime. Even if I was 20, I'd have trouble paying it off. So that's what he's talking about with the prison. Um, Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Some scholars have looked at verse 25 and 26 and said the double meaning here is hell, where those that don't believe are in debt, aren't they? And I don't mean money-wise. They're in debt to God. All sin has to be paid for. Very good, Jeff. So either Christ paid on the cross and by faith I believe in him and my debt is wiped out. What an incredible thing. Or I don't believe in Jesus. I'm willing to take my chances and I find out that when I get to heaven and judgment day, I'm in debt 25 million worth for my sin. And the common thing I used to say to people when I was witnessing to them a long time ago is, the common question is, yeah, but wait a minute. That's for all my sins. Yes. 25 million. Yes. And I'm putting a dollar figure on it. There's no dollar figures in heaven. Well, what about all my good deeds that I did? Isn't there, come on, doesn't that kind of balance out? And so we used to say to people, every time you sin, it's $100,000. And every good deed you do is worth a nickel. Good luck. You can't pay your way out. So that's what he, whether he's talking about that or not, scholars really disagree, but I thought I would throw it in at no extra charge. Um, later in this chapter, you'll see what I'm talking about, that he, uh, right around verses 40 to 44, he gives a different scenario where it sounds like even the innocent party is to do, go the extra mile to make peace happen. Remember, what did he say earlier? Blessed are the peacemakers. Okay, so uh, I'm just reading notes here. Um, Ephesians 4 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Settle things quickly, because it gets worse and worse if you hold that anger in. Uh, and the Bible also says, be angry and sin not. There's a way to be angry and have it be a righteous anger where you don't sin as a result of the anger. Verse 27 you have heard that it was said, every time he says this six times, he's referring to an Old Testament commandment or law that he's going to take to a new level, a deeper level, a heart and mind level, not just doing the act, like he did with murder. He said, you shall not murder, and then he showed them that it was anger and all that other stuff, calling somebody a fool. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's take those two because then we get into the surgery 
portion of our lesson, starting in verse 29. We'll talk about that in a second. So you've heard that it was said, and he, he's right. It's a, one of the Ten Commandments, number seven, not to commit adultery. Defining our terms, adultery is, um, in the broad sense of the, the Old Testament commandments, there are two words for sexual sin, and two only. And they are adultery, which is one of the two people having sex is married but not to the person they're having sex with. You got it? So it could be both of them are married, but not to each other and they're having sex, or one of them is married. You got the picture? And they're having sex outside of their marriage. The other word is, you've seen it in Ulta, in King James and other translations, fornication. You ever see that? That's the everything else, meaning, well, they're having sex, but neither one of them is married. That's fornication. They're both guilty. Hebrews says, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Because it's an ongoing, habitual, lifestyle sin. Living with your boyfriend, living with your girlfriend, whatever it may be. Um, here, in the commandment, it means both of those. Any sex outside of the boundaries of one woman, one man, marriage. Okay? So I just wanted to cover that first of all. The Pharisees took it very strictly. That's the Jewish leaders. And they said, it just means the act of having sex. Okay. Um, not that they were talking on the phone. They didn't have phones then, but you know what I'm saying. Not that they were texting or sexting, whatever it is, and not that they were flirting. It's none of that. It's the act of doing it. Remember, they bring a woman to Jesus in the Gospel of John, caught in the very act of adultery. We could spend all night on that one, by the way. Where's the man? They only bring the woman. You can't commit adultery alone. Okay, so um, Jesus, they said it's just the act itself. Jesus takes it way deeper. I tell you, verse 29, and keep in mind, he's quoting God's word and then having the audacity to say, but I say. That would be blasphemous unless he's the Son of God, which he is. Who better to explain the Ten Commandments than the Son of God? Keep in mind the broad overview of these three chapters. He is at the same time giving us the moral code of the kingdom of God, but he's also for the Jews, trying to show them, you think you can be righteous by keeping the Ten Commandments? Forget it. By keeping the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, forget it. He's showing them, you thought you were okay on the murder one? Haven't you ever called somebody an idiot or been angry with somebody? That's where it starts. Now with adultery, he's going to do the same thing. Look at verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his, not bed, heart. Did you know adultery could occur there? Meaning, it's the whole fantasy thing. Oh, I'm never going to do it, but I am going to think about it quite a bit. No good. It's the same thing. It's the acorn that grows into the oak tree. You've already got an oak tree problem. Anyone who looks at a, see that, woman this is typical in the Bible that does not say that the opposite isn't true because it is. 
It could also read any, any of you ladies who looks at a man, <clears throat> excuse me, lustfully, and that is the word look. There's a word for look, like I'm going to look over at this doorway now, watch. See, I just glanced and went, okay, I don't want to look at that. This is a word that means, do you ever heard, have you ever heard this word? Leering. Just staring with the intent of imagining, lusting. So just the look is enough that it's a sin. Trying to show them that you can't live up to the law. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already, he doesn't say you're on the way, you're on the, the road, the yellow brick road to adultery. You've already done it. Now, the dumbest thing in the world, and some of the commentaries mention this, is there's people that go, well, I've looked, so I might as well do the whole thing now and commit the sin. Even worse. Are they equivalent sins? No. But in God's eyes, are they both sin? Yes. We want to, as believers, avoid all sin, don't we? Okay, so even the look, because it starts here, is a sin. Keep in mind the thought process as well as the vision process you control for yourself. If I tell you, don't turn around and look at the doors back there, you have a decision to make. Am I going to, okay, I'm not going to look, or I just, I'm sorry, I have to look and see what's back there. You control where you look. The first glance when you're sitting at the stoplight and a beautiful woman or handsome man, scantily dressed, whatever, we'll talk about that in a second, walks in front of your windshield, it's in, unavoidable. Train yourself to go, I don't want to see that. Okay? I'm married. I don't want to see that. I don't want to have eyes for anybody except for my wife or my husband if you're a woman. On the other hand, you might say, well, I'm single, so no, no. Same thing. I don't want to go there. I'm going to look at something else. Watch television, if you do, with the remote in hand. I have become as fast as the, the Sundance Kid. Did you ever see Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? He could just draw and shoot four guys at once before they even knew what day it was. I'm quick with the remote. Sometimes I'm watching a show, a commercial comes on that's almost pornographic, and I don't want to see that. I don't want it to go into my eye gate. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. You ever heard that song? By the way, women, men too, what you wear matters, right? Are you wearing this dress, blouse, whatever, for the purpose of enticement? Keep in mind, most of what women wear today would be considered scandalous 100 years ago. Pants on a woman? I'm not saying that's a sin. But if you'd like to confess, any women that have pants on? Just kidding. My point is, we can dress suggestively, act suggestively. All of that is out. In this category is pornography as well, which 50, 75 years ago, you had to go somewhere and buy it. Now it's free on a little screen or on your phone. It's bad. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. So you've heard the saying, that, that there's temptation in the world. And you can't keep the birds 
uh, from flying overhead, but you can sure keep them from t making a nest in your hair, meaning I'm going to think about it, but I'm not going to do it. You're already doing it according to Jesus. Job 31, what an interesting verse. Job 31, verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. A covenant with my own eyes. that if He's made up his mind. He's going to look away kind of thing. It's a choice. It's a boat you steer yourself, what you look at, what you think about. And sexual sin begins with imagination. Murder begins with anger, hatred, all of that. Okay, so now we're, I think we're ready to get to the surgery, are we not? Um, I've brought some surgical instruments here in case anybody, uh, just kidding. Verse 29, uh, by the way, there are all kinds of books written. Uh, the most famous one is The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Have you ever heard of this book? And there's some things he says that you go, what did he say? This is one of them. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to st stumble or sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's just skip this portion and move on, shall we? Anybody confused? Is he talking literally? Is there anyone, if it was literal, that would show up to church Sunday with two good eyes and two good hands? I don't think so. So there have been some who have taken this literally. Cut your eye out. Cut your hand off. Listen, that can't be what he means, and I'm going to tell you why. Number one, if my right hand has caused me to sin and my right eye, let's just say, and I actually gouge out my eye and cut off my hand. Is the problem solved? Could I still sin with one eye? Okay, I'm gonna gouge the other eye out. Now I can't see it all. Can I still sin with imagination? And of course. Now I've got no hands, no legs, no eyes, no ears. Can I still sin? Yes. So that can't be what he means. We take the Bible literally, but that doesn't mean you take it in a wooden literal sense. You take it in the sense in which it's written. This is what's called in literature hyperbole, exaggeration to make a point. Okay, Joe, what's the point? By the way, if you saw the subject line of the email for Bible study tonight, one of the things listed was surgery. This is what I meant. And if your eye, right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Better to lose one part of your body for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Same thing with your right hand. By the way, the right hand was very important. In some parts of the Middle East, if you lose your right hand, you can't eat in public. What if I'm left-handed? You eat right-handed. In uh, Saudi Arabia and some other Arabic countries, if you're caught stealing, they used to. I don't think they any, do it anymore. They would cut your right hand off. So you couldn't really eat in public anymore. Talk about a deterrent, right, for crime. Okay, what's going on here? What Jesus is saying uh, is deal radically 
not only with conflicts between you and Harold on the way to court, get it settled quickly. He's saying deal radically with sin. Every day of our lives, we have a list of stuff we need to get done, don't we? To-do list. If you're like me and your list is long, do you ever do this? Look at the list and go, okay, it's overwhelming as 19 things. I'm going to prioritize, okay? That's very important. I got to get that done. That could wait. That could wait. That, could, that one's important. He's saying sin is so much worse than we think it is. Deal with it radically. If I have a refrigerator that's not working, if I have lost my shoe, and if the bedroom at my house is on fire, what would you say is the biggest priority? You got to put the fire out. He's saying deal radically with sin because it's a fire. So whatever he's saying, do surgery on your life, not physically, but you have to examine your life and say, well, when do I actually do this lusting with my eyes? Oh, right. It's the pornography I'm watching on television. Stop doing that. If you have to throw your TV in the garbage, do that. When do I tend to get drunk? Whenever I'm with Harold, stay away from Harold. Surgery, it's necessary. Whatever is your area or the seed of where the sin begins, we got to do surgery, not cutting hands and eyes out, but you can still sin with the mind. So deal radically and decisively with sin. Um, let's see. Uh, let's look at this again. Right eye, verse 29, right hand. Cut it off, throw it away. The, the reason is, uh, in both verses, better for you to lose one part of your body, verse 29, uh, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. What we think about when we think about losing a hand or an eye is, well, that's a huge lifetime loss. I don't want to do that. So would it be if Harold was my good friend and every time I see him, I use drugs or I get drunk or we rob liquor stores or whatever we do, stop seeing Harold. Deal radically, decisively with sin. See sin the way God sees it. It is not, it's a three-letter word, S-I-N, right? It's huge. It is the root cause of every single problem on planet earth, bar none. Every war, every divorce, every murder, every rape, every theft, it's all S-I-N positive. We need to deal radically with it. The way to do it is Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, God promises soon, he's saying there, we've seen it happen 2,000 years ago, he will give us his spirit inside of us and new hearts. That couldn't happen until the Savior died on the cross and paid for our sins. Now it can. Um, also, uh, if you're sinning in one area, getting drunk, uh, pornography, whatever. This verse is saying, don't taper off gradually. I'm going to go down from two six-packs a day to one. That's not cutting off your hand. It's stop cold turkey. You ever heard the term cold turkey? Stop immediately. Um, 
spiritual surgery is more important than physical surgery, and that's what he's talking about here. Um, okay, this verse mentions hell. 29 does, so does 30. Do you see it there? Thrown into hell. The word for hell is different from Sheol and, and um, Hades. This is a word, Gehenna in the Greek, okay? The Valley of Hinnon, from which this word gets its name, was the dump outside of Jerusalem, where there was always fire and smoke, because constantly stuff was being burned there. The site of that dump, centuries before, there were human sacrifices. It was an awful place, and they remembered that. So the word for hell is to be outside the presence of God in Jerusalem and the temple, and to have burning and suffering and what have you. Okay. Mankind, listen, are you still awake? Say amen. Yes. Man, mankind, it woke me up. Mankind, listen, was meant to know God. You ever meet people that go, well, I'm, I'm, I'm an artist. I was born to be an artist. Maybe. I was born to be a builder, a musician, a mathematician. Maybe. But more than anything, mankind was meant to know God. Those who got, go to hell have lost that forever because of their choice. Hell is, as you know, permanent. There's no second chance there. After 100 years, you get parole for good behavior. Forget it. It's eternal. Um, and hell is pictured as a place of torment, fire. It's pictured in Luke 16 as a place, listen, of unquenchable thirst, if you can imagine, unquenchable thirst, unfulfilled longing. Okay, what's your point? The deepest need a person has is not food, water, air, clothing, shelter, um, community. All of those things are important. The biggest one is to know God, and that's been lost. So um, it's almost like a person in a small rowboat, rowboat lost it at sea. Water everywhere, you can't drink it. There's no relief for thirst because you can't drink salt water. So that's why hell is mentioned there. Um, okay, so not committing adultery. Is adultery the unforgivable sin? No, of course not. It's a sin that you can repent of and be reconciled to God. The woman at the well was the queen of adultery. You remember the story in uh, John 4? The Samaritan woman. They have a conversation, she and Jesus. We won't go there now. But eventually she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And the reason she says that is, she says to him, I want the water that you have. I'm thirsty. And he says, go call your husband. Do you remember the story? It's very strange. Why, why do I need to call my husband? I want the water. He says, she says to him, I have no husband. And he says, yeah, got that right. You've had five and the guy you live with now is not your husband. Go call your husband. In other words, before you can come to me and drink the water, you got to deal with your adultery. You got to deal with your sin. And there's a repentance issue there. The good news is she repents. She believes. 
She tells her whole town about Jesus and they come out to see her. If you have committed adultery or any other sin for that matter, it's not unforgivable. You confess it, turn from it. Hell, we talked about that. Um, Tim Keller in his sermon on this says, that woman was trying to find in the arms of men what only God can give. And people try to find in a bottle or in a drug or in money or power or prestige what only God can give them. Verse 30. No, we already did that one. Moving on. Verse 31. Now it was said, verse 31, whoever sends his wife away, this is divorce, is to give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, by the way, that's the word porneia, from which we get, you guessed it, pornography, uh, any sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This also is in every book titled The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Okay. In the Old Testament, God never sanctioned divorce. He says in the Old Testament, I, God talking, hate divorce. Marriage is supposed to be, Ephesians 5 says, a picture of the marriage between God and his people. Israel in the Old Testament, the church now. The bride of Christ is the church. The bridegroom is Jesus. It's supposed to be that sort of eternal bond, lifelong bond. That's the first thing. The Jews were getting divorced a lot. So because God knew this, because Moses knew this, he writes about it in Deuteronomy uh, 24. I want you to turn there. <clears throat> this is a little confusing, I know. So go to the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. If you can't find it, that's okay. We'll only be here a second. The Jews misunderstand what Moses says and make it mean something crazy outside the will of God. Verse 24. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 24, verse 21. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him or he finds an uncleanness in her because of he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. This is an if proposition. Notice that's not a sentence. It's a situation God knows is occurring. And the man had to give her a written certificate of divorce. In that culture, I want you to know, the woman could not divorce the man. No rights. But let's keep reading. If he finds something indecent about her and he writes her certificate of divorce, gives it to her, sends her from his house, verse 2, and after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again, after she's been defiled, she's been with more than one man. Got the picture? That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Don't bring sin upon the land the Lord's giving you as an inheritance. Okay, go back to Matthew 5 with me. What's going on here? 
The Jews had taken that little loophole, being the lawyers that they were, and they said, well, we need to define the man finding something indecent in his wife. There were two schools of thought. The liberal school of thought, the Hillel school of thought, which was a guy's name that was a rabbi, a very smart rabbi, he said, listen to this, ladies, it can be just about anything. She burned the dinner. She forgot to give me my coffee this morning. The French toast has no taste. She forgot to vacuum the rug. Yes, they had vacuums back then. <laughs> my point is they had made it so male dominated that the man could divorce his wife for, you know, I don't like her fingernails, really. They kind of bug me. She put on four pounds. Come on. Okay. He's saying here, um, he's talking about marriage and giving her a certificate of divorce. If the woman was given a certificate of divorce, women in that culture, most of them didn't work. So they would look for and maybe get married to another guy for security reasons, protection, the man would support her kind of thing. This sounds like the woman becomes an adulteress. Some scholars think that's true. Most do not. I'm going to show you why I don't think it's true. Okay. Um, verse 31, whoever sends his wife away to, to give her a, is to give her a certificate of divorce. That's what the Old Testament says. I just read it to you. Verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, stop right there. What does that mean? That means I won't make it me. Harold over here is married to Louise, and he catches her in bed with another woman. Okay, you got the picture? With another man, well, or woman for that matter. <laughs> and nowadays, right? He catches her in bed with somebody else. How about that, folks? The point is, that's uh, sexual immorality. And she, according, listen to the law of God, he would have a right then, Harold would, to say, I'm divorcing you. That's the only legitimate reason for divorce in the Bible among believers. There's one additional one in 1 Corinthians 10, 7, sorry, which says when a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever abandons the person, the, the Christian is not under obligation. That's also a legit divorce. There are scholars that disagree about that. I'm just letting you know. But in this case, it is that reason, sexual immorality. She's committed adultery with someone else. That's a legit reason for divorce. Oh, okay, so the man's off the hook. Not so fast. The higher ground is for them to reconcile for her to repent, for him to forgive, are those easy things? No, right? She has to repent and say, I'll never see that guy again. I'm so sorry I did it. Please forgive me. And he's got to have in his heart that kind of softness that says, okay, honey. Does he have the right to divorce her? Yes. The higher ground is stay together and make it work because it's a picture of Christ and the church. I'm going to show you in Ephesians 5 shortly. And in that case, if every time you and I screwed up, Jesus divorced us, guess what? We'd all be divorced. 
He's constantly forgiving us. It's supposed to be a picture of marriage. Uh, the, the church and Christ, marriage is a picture of that, I should say. Okay, go back to the text. Um, everyone who divorces his wife, except for that reason, makes her commit adultery. Do you see that? Okay, so we've got Harold here and his wife. What did I say her name was? Louise. And she slept with somebody else and he divorced her. Poor Louise is out on the street now. And so eventually she's divorced with that stupid certificate he gave her. It wasn't done in the courts. It was done very informally. I, Harold, divorced you, Louise, get lost. Signed, Harold. Here it is. Bye. She has to leave now. She's going to get married to Jeff over here. Okay. Now, is she an adulteress? Is she now guilty? Was she guilty of the sin? Yes. Let's assume she repented of the sin. And Harold said, no, get lost. You're out. Notice the wording carefully. Everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality. Now let's make it Harold divorced her because she burnt the toast and brought the car back with no gas in it or whatever. Except for that reason, makes her commit adultery. Listen, she's not an adulteress in that, in that case. He divorced her for non-biblical reasons. She is, has been, if I can use the word, adulterated by him. Do you see the point? So, um, and uh, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is where it gets complicated. As a general sense, a, a general rule in the Bible, God wants sex between human beings to be, number one, man, woman. Number two, only in the bounds of mar marriage. Number three, for life. No different partners here and there, and I'm just kind of shopping around, seeing what I like and don't like, and none of that. If this was the way marriage and sex was handled on planet Earth, guess what there would never be? Any sexually transmitted diseases. How could there be? Right? Every woman only slept with her husband. Every man only slept with his wife. And that's it. As, a, as it stands, we've got huge problems, don't we? Uh, especially now, but it was going on then as well. Okay, in God's eyes, when Harold divorces her for an unbiblical reason, um, she's still married to him in God's eyes. Are you with me? So he makes her commit adultery because he kicked her out. You can't blame her for needing somebody to marry. It is not the wife doing it. Um, she, he makes her commit adultery. Um, let's see, I've got so many... Uh, Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Um, yeah, we talked about that. Let's go to Ephesians 5 really fast. Ephesians, take a right from Matthew. I'll say 12 books, but that's a guess. It's right before Philippians, that I know. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Before that, it's husbands love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. Do you see that in 25? In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. Well, how does he love the church? Does he get mad if we burn the toast? 
You're out, Joe. You lost your salvation. No, he's so forgiving. He's so patient. We're supposed to, husbands, love our wives that way. He gave himself up for her. We could spend all night here, but we won't. Verse 25, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. In the same way, verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies because we are the body of Christ. No wonder he loves us, right? Um, whoever, let's see, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. We are members of his body, verse 30. And then it goes on. Uh, skip down to verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about marriage in context, but that's not what he says. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Each of you are to love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Nowadays, we've got double the number of divorces because a woman can divorce a man, right? For just about any reason. In the Bible, the only reason, as I said, is sexual immorality, that there's been sex outside the marriage covenant. As I said, the higher ground is forgiveness and repentance. Um, let's see. We already talked about that. Uh, hard sayings of Jesus. Uh, let me see if we, uh, we, when we come back, we'll do this. I want to talk about two types of relationships. Um, one is covenant relationship, and the other one is consumer relationship. But let's take our two-minute break. Go get some snacks back there. If you don't, uh, please make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's very important. Those of you on Zoom, hang tight. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Way. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Find your seats back there, those of you that are still munching on treats. Okay. Why is there so much divorce? Why is there so much, uh, in our country especially, people living together instead of getting married? Okay. Tim Keller has a sermon about this. It's on YouTube. If you Google uh, love and lust, Tim Keller, it'll come up. Uh, it's on YouTube, but it's not video. It's just you'll just listen. It's a screen there, and you'll just listen. It's like 34 minutes long. I strongly recommend it. Okay. Two types of relationship, consumer relationship. Uh, let's say Ken has a hot dog stand near where I work. Um, Ken's not my friend. We have a consumer relationship. I don't say this to him, but it's implied, Ken, I will do business with you as a consumer and I will buy your hot dogs. We have a relationship. Unless I find better hot dogs down the street. Or unless it becomes too costly. Come on, they, they used to be $6, now they're $11. Ah. So it's a tentative relationship. It might not last forever, but it might, at least as long as we're alive, right? As long as you provide a good product for me, better than I can find anywhere else. And as long as you keep the price reasonable, I'm in, right? Consumer 
relationship. That's how a lot of marriages are. People may not say it in the wedding vows for better or worse, for sickness and in health, till death to us part, but in the back of their mind, it's a consumer relationship. Harold says to Louise, I will love you forever. In his mind, he's thinking, unless I find somebody better, smarter, prettier, in better shape, with more money, who treats me better, doesn't say anything disrespectful to me. That's a consumer relationship. And she could do the same thing to him, right? That's why people get divorced. I know there's adultery and that's a biblical reason, but a lot of times it's, um, he's very careless with money. Um, couples argue over money. 50% roughly of American couples and uh, marriages end in divorce. What about the Christian community, Joe? 50% of marriages in churches end in divorce. Because it's a consumer relationship and that's not how it's supposed to be. Is your relationship with Jesus a consumer relationship? That Jesus might say to you, you're in, but you better watch it. If I find somebody that's a better Christian, you're out. He would never do that. You burnt the toast. I'm so sorry I burnt the toast. Get out. No, no. He says, I forgive you, my child. The difference between a consumer relationship and a covenant relationship is that the covenant relationship has total, listen, security. I will never leave you or forsake you. Who says that? Jesus, right? God says it. We're supposed to be saying it to our spouses. But there's always a but or an if, unless, and there can't be that. A covenant relationship is I'm in for the duration, regardless. It's, what's that? A ring. Three. No, it takes three. Say that again louder. Oh, three, she's saying husband, wife, and Jesus. Amen. I can't imagine being married, and I bet you can't either, without that triangle and God being at the head of the marriage. Amen. Well said. Okay. Covenant relationship. Uh, I'll serve you. I'll be your spouse. Even if, here it comes, you ready for this one? Even if you're not meeting my needs or expectations. He's just not meeting my needs. I, she's just not. Where do you find that in the Bible? It's a covenant relationship. You want to know what another covenant relationship is? Father or mother to son or daughter. You don't say, you're my son, I love you, but if your room isn't clean, you're out. You're not my son anymore. Never would you say that. The point is, it's not a security, it's not a consumer thing. It's a covenant. It is a commitment. It's a promise. It's more important than my feelings or my needs, this relationship. Um, let's see. Yeah, we talked about that and that. Um, and sex, because we're on the subject of divorce, but we just left adultery, didn't we? Sex is supposed to be a covenant 
celebration ceremony. Only you, only you. The problem is sometimes one person sees the marriage, Louise sees it as a covenant. I'm married to you, Harold, regardless. Harold, not so much. It's a consumer thing. You're not the same as you were. Who is, right? There's always reasons why I want to make a different choice now. That's not a covenant relationship. You buy a car. That's not a covenant relationship. That's a consumer relationship. I want this car. I, I will own this car unless it becomes too costly, too many repairs. I don't like how it sounds. It doesn't have the prestige of that car. I'm going to get rid of the car. That's fine. Not with a wife, not with a husband. Um, so sex outside of marriage lacks integrity. There's a book. I can't remember the name of it. It's in that sermon, though, if you listen to Tim Keller, Love and Lust on YouTube, Matthew 5. You'll find it. In that sermon, he says there's a book written by non-Christians. Uh, I think it's called Marriage in America. I could be wrong. In which it says that couples that live together before marriage, listen to this, get, get divorced more than those that don't. Isn't that interesting? Couples that live together, you know what it clearly is? A consumer relationship. I kind of want to test drive things for a few years, honey. No offense. And she does too. And because are you going to meet my needs or, or is it a covenant? Okay, you're beating a dead horse joke. Yes, I know. Um, I belong to you completely uh, forever. Um, the longer you live with someone, the less likely it is that you will find someone and have a covenant relationship with them because it's a consumer relationship. Um, we already talked about that. Like I said, for adultery, even murder and even divorce, it's not the unforgivable sin. Have you been divorced? Is, is that a sin Jesus forgot to die for on the cross? No. Are you repentant of it and ready to understand the covenant and make a covenant again? There's forgiveness at the cross for everything. Um, sex becomes a greedy desire, an idol, may I say. And... Greedy, greedy people think money will give them that deep affirmation that only God can give. People that are sleeping around think the same thing about sex. I'm looking for that fulfillment. And if I have to find 30 different partners, I'm going to do it. You'll never get there. It'll get worse and worse. The more, in this book, I think it's the same book mentions, the more people look at pornography, the less they are able to have a monogamous, that means one person, relationship, a covenant as opposed to a consumer relationship. Uh, last thing, God says in the Bible, do not be unequally yoked. Meaning what? You're a Christian, yes. Don't marry her or him if she's not a Christian. Simple as that. No, but I'm dating her and she's kind of interested and forget it. 
Don't be unequally yoked. Okay, now that I made everyone uncomfortable, let's move on again. Um, Verse 33, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows or oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, verse 34, take no oath at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's, the throne of God, nor by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, nor so shall you take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make a single hair white or black. Yes, I know there's hair color now. This is written 2,000 years ago, but you get the point. Make, but make sure your statement is yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil origin. Okay, you say, what the heck is going on here? The Jews were fond of making oaths, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the rabbis, had developed unbiblically this whole hierarchy of what was a binding oath and what wasn't. Um, So they said that if you swear by the name of the Lord, um, that's a sin, and you don't do it. I swear by the name of the Lord, I'll repay you the $1,000 I owe you. And then I don't do it. That's a major sin. You swore by God's name. So, but if you swore by, uh, this is how elaborate it got. If you swore toward Jerusalem, it was binding. But if you swore by Jerusalem, it wasn't a binding oath. Like when you were a kid, did you ever say, did you ever do this? Um, yes, I'll let you use my bike. Oh, I had my fingers crossed. Remember that? They had this elaborate thing of swearing by, no, I swear I'm going to do it. It's the truth. I swear by my own head. You ever heard this one? I swear on my mother's grave. Remember that? Here's the one you, as a kid, we used to do. No, really, I swear to God, right? Doesn't it imply that you're usually lying when you need to swear about something? Um, a friend of mine did business years ago in the Bay Area, and he told me there was a guy he dealt with who would occasionally say, well, all right, look, I'll tell you the truth. And my friend would think, well, what have you been doing in the last half an hour? That year? Okay, I'll be honest with you. Haven't you been honest all along? Any person that says, no, I really, I swear on my mother's grave, I swear to God, I swear on my children's lives, I swear on my head, I swear by the sacrifice on the altar, the Jews had this big elaborate thing. What it belied or what it was really hinting at was they were breaking another commandment, which is do not bear false, what? Witness, don't lie. So he says, don't do any of that. And his point is here, whether you swear by the earth or by Jerusalem or by your mother, it's all God's anyway. Look, take no oath, uh, verse 34, take no oath at all, neither by heaven. They would swear by, I swear by the heavens. Listen, for it's the throne of God. That's the throne of God. It's related to God, not just the name of God, but don't swear by heaven. That's God's throne. Don't swear by the earth. That's God's footstool. Don't swear by Jerusalem. I'm still in verse 35 now. It's the city of the great king. Nor shall you take an oath, verse 36, by your head, for you can't make a single hair white or black. Like I said, is he wrong now? No, he's still right. 
Because you can color your hair, but underneath there, guess what? Your hair's still the color it was. It's covered. And my proof is, wait six or eight or 10 weeks, and we'll see what the real color of your hair is, right? Okay, so he ends it with by saying, verse 37, make sure your statement is yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond that's evil, because it hints at twisting the truth. Lying. Keep in mind, if I am, uh, if I'm at a store, well, if I'm in a bank, and I see one of the bank tellers stealing money. Got the picture? I saw it. And the police come and say, don't you work at the bank part-time? And I say, yes. And they say, did you take the money? And I say, no. And that's all I say. That's a lie. You say, no, it's true. You didn't take the money, but it's a half truth because I know who did take the money, right? If you withhold truth that you know you sh is pertinent, it's important to say it. Why did you bring in the pertinent thing? Because you don't have to be truthful about everything all the time. For example, Joe, did you take the money? The investigator from the law enforcement comes and I say, no, by the way, I hate your shoes. That may be the truth, but it's not pertinent. Why did you need to say that? Um, I don't like your hairstyle, whatever. Okay. Live an honest life. Vows, when vows are needed, it implies integrity is questionable. No, really, I swear to God, I'll pay you back. Already I'm going, he's not going to pay me back. That's coming up in the, the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. Um, okay, so what about when you go to court and they make you put a hand on a Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth shall so help you, God? I do. Is that a sin? No. God in the Bible takes oaths. Jesus swears under oath in his trial when they say to him, I adjure you by the living God. Are you uh, the son of God? Remember? And he says, I am because he's under oath. Is it okay to take oaths in certain situations? Yes. Paul makes oaths in Romans 1, 2 Corinthians 1, Galatians 1, 2 Thessalonians 2. Um, but the whole point is it weakens your word when you say, well, I'll be honest with you, or I swear by my mother's, just tell the truth. By the way, it's so much simpler and less stressful because you got to remember every lie you told every person. What did I tell Janet? Did I tell her that, uh, right? And you get caught in a lie. There's nothing worse. Just tell the truth. Hebrews 6, Luke 1, God swears oaths. Okay. Um, Tim, I mean, Ken, did you have your hand up back there or no? No, okay. Verse, uh, so taking oaths. He's really dealing with the commandment about telling the truth, isn't he? Not lying. Uh, you have heard that it was said, verse 38. This, this also is in every hard sayings of Jesus' book, by the way. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. 
Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Hard saying. There's so much here. Let's take it apart a little at a time, shall we? First of all, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. Is that in the Old Testament? Yes. What does it mean? It was never in the Old Testament, anywhere you can find it. It never speaks of interpersonal relationships. In other words, it speaks of proportional and fair punishment for crimes by, this is the key, the civil government. Do you understand? So that if uh, Jesse here gouged out my eye, that does not give me a license to go to his house with a knife and say, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. What it does give me a license to do is report him to the authorities and say, he gouged out my eye. And from that crime, they were supposed to uh, designate his punishment. You understand what I'm saying? But it was never supposed to be an eye for an eye. He knocked out my tooth in a fight. So I get to go knock one out for him. No, not interpersonally. The, the punishment has to fit the crime. If he knocked my tooth out and they gave him the death penalty, that's not fair. It's not proportional. So that's the first thing. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's true. This is called um, the law of uh, less, I want to say it right, less talionis, which is the law of retribution. But it was only with regard to a person committing a crime and the government giving the proper punishment for the crime, however bad or good it was. If he killed me, murdered me, my wife could go to the authorities and say, a life for a life, Old Testament, in the Jewish, when they govern themselves, and they would come and capital punishment would be done on Jesse because he killed, he murdered me, they would murder him. Death penalty. Um, okay. So Lex Talionis, I'm sorry, I said it wrong, I think. Equal compensation from the government, but never vengeance in personal relationships. Um, and there's no room for, although we want to, don't we? Vengeance or vigilante justice. We're all so mad at him. Let's a bunch of us get together and go burn his house down. Not for us to do. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And by the way, God can repay somebody who hurt you way better than you can. Let him do it. You stay out of it. Romans 12, 17 and 19, repay no one evil for evil. Don't avenge yourselves. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Here it comes, ready? I will repay. The problem with us is we're always saying, when? The sooner the better. I can do it tomorrow night. Let God do it. Um, okay, so that's the first thing. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person. I'm reading NIV, okay? Sometimes NIV is not the best translation. In this verse, a lot of commentaries I read said, it is the best translation here. I believe KJV, King James has. Do, uh, does anybody have King James here? Does it say, do not resist evil, Jesse? 
um, for verse, let's see, where were we? Um, verse 39, but I say to you, what does it say in verse 39? Oh, and resist an evil person. Some translations have don't resist evil. Um, don't show opposition against an evil person. And then he's going to give an, uh, an example. Okay, here it comes. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn toward him the other also. Okay, in our culture, you know what that's about? He slapped me. I'm going to slap him back. Okay, because he physically assaulted me. That is not what this is saying. The Jews, to the Jews, if I slap Jesse with my right, you would always use your right hand. Remember, eat with your right hand, slap with your right hand, even if you're left-handed. If I slapped him with the open right hand, that's one thing. But this is saying, it's very specific. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, if I slap Jesse with my open right hand, it would be his left cheek. Do you follow? To slap Jesse with my right hand on his left cheek, it would have to be this, backhander. You say, what's the difference? To the Jews, it was twice as bad. This was a little bit of an assault. This is an insult, a public insult, a disgrace to backhand somebody, right cheek, right hand. That's why it's there. So what it is is, it's an affront to his dignity. His pride is hurt because they did it. It's not the slap. He's going to want to get even with me. And this verse is saying, don't retaliate. Um, don't resist. Uh, some translations even have don't resist evil or don't resist the evil one. It's don't retaliate really against an evil person. Don't show opposition against an evil person. What he did was evil. If he insults you like that, Take it. I know this is hard, right? Because human nature is such, I'm not even satisfied slapping him the same way. I want to hit him harder, maybe with a small bat or a club or something, right? And then what's he going to want to do? It'll just escalate, right? I'm going to go to Joe's house and hit him with a bat. And then I'm going to go to his house and run him and his dog over with my car. And then he's going to come with a bus. And do you see what I mean? It just gets worse and worse. Um, the, the, the evil person slaps your cheek to insult you. He sues you for your clothes, or he asks you to go an extra. He goes actually to go a mile. We'll get to each one of these. I'm going to try to finish this little section now, though, um, if we can. Uh, turn to him the other cheek also means no retaliation. He tries to insult me by slapping my right cheek with his right hand. Is that right? Yes. And I say, I'm turning the other cheek, not the one I'm sitting on this cheek. But anyway, turning the other cheek means I'm not, I'm not even going to resist. I'm not going to get into a little tit for tat thing with him where he's hitting me and then I'm hitting him. Then we're in a full on fight. Okay. This does not mean be a doormat. If he hits you with a baseball bat and knocks you out, just wake up and go, praise the Lord. That's not what it's saying. Okay. What's going on here culturally is an insult. And there's, he, Jesus is saying, just take the insult. It's not that heavy. 
The God of the universe calls you his kid and thinks you're great. Who cares what this guy who slapped you thinks? As you can probably guess, the example for all this is Christ, who wasn't just slapped, he was beaten, spit on, mocked on the cross. And what does he say? Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. In the Luke passage where it says, he said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. The tense of the verb is continuous action, which means he didn't say it once. He kept on saying it. He got slapped. They're hammering nails. They're putting crowns of thorns on him. They're whipping him. They're beating him. He kept saying it. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Could Jesus have retaliated? Wow right? God of the universe. He could have called 10,000 legions of angels and zapped them all. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So don't just res not resist. Take positive action. Turn the other cheek. Okay. Um, a slap is a deep insult, and the, and the, the backhander is considered twice as bad to a Jew. Um, we already talked about that. What to do if someone offends you? That's what this is about. Don't show opposition against an evil person, verse 39, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the, the other to him also. Verse 40, okay, culturally, we got to explain this. If anyone wants to sue you, anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. What's a tunic? What's a cloak? In those days, people wore tunics, okay? I want you to picture me with a t-shirt, it's summer, so I don't have a t-shirt on. You know what a t-shirt is? An undershirt. A tunic was an undershirt that went all the way down to the knees, okay? That's all it was. Very light. It's like the person's underwear. They didn't have boxers. They didn't have briefs. They wore a tunic. You with me so far? The undergarment, very thin, inexpensive. The outer garment is the cloak much thicker, much heavier. If you're sleeping outside because you work outdoors and that's where you're going to sleep, you, that cloak would be like your blanket or your bed. The, the laws in the Old Testament say you can't take anybody's cloak against the law. He's saying if somebody wants to sue you and take your t-shirt, give him your coat too. So what? Blessed are the peacemakers. Wait, wait, wait. This is too costly for me. I have to really swallow my pr pride. Oh, probably a good thing to do, isn't it? If someone wants to sue you, it does not say you owe it to him. You were wrong, Joe, and he's suing you now. It might be that it's a frivolous lawsuit again, and he's saying, don't just give him your t-shirt. What's the guy suing me for? The t-shirt, the tunic. He's saying, go the extra mile and give him your cloak as well. Two examples so far. Let's get the third example. And then I want to talk about the reaction. And that's what this is all about. Whoever forces you, verse 41, to go one mile, go with him too. What the heck is that? The Romans had taken over Israel. There was a rule that a Roman soldier could grab any Jewish male and say, hey, Ken, come here. 
and the Jewish, sold, the Jewish person hated this, but they would say, yes, what do you want? And the Roman soldier could say, carry my pack, my suitcase, my bag, whatever it is, but it's yours, you carry it. No, you carry it for me. The rule was, it has to be one mile limit is all he has to carry it. Then I can find another Jew and go, okay, Ron, I need a mile from you. Carry my big heavy pack. I don't want to carry it. And the Jews had to do it and they hated it and they resented it. He says, whoever forces you to go one mile, hey, Ken, come here, carry my pack. And I know it's only supposed to be one mile. Ken is a Christian and he says, because I'm a Christian, I'm going to go the extra mile. You ever heard that saying? I'll carry it two miles. What? Okay, I'm the Roman soldier. What am I thinking? Wow. That's amazing grace. You're willing to do that? By the way, Ken's going to walk with me for two miles now. You know what he's probably going to say? I love the Lord Jesus. He's changed my life. He's had given me a whole different view of pride and everything about my life is different. You know, Ken's going to say, the other day, Jesse um, slapped Joe in the face and Joe just turned away and turned the other cheek and didn't slap him back. What kind of people are you? Listen, the answer starts with a D, different. Christians are supposed to be different because the rest of the world would have slapped him back, would have told the soldier off and dropped his bag and hoped things broke in it and spit on the soldier if he could get away with it. The Christian goes the extra mile. And then Ken would tell him about Jeff, who got somebody frivolously sued him for his tunic. And Jeff said, hey, man, if you want my cloak, you can take it too. I'm thinking the guy that ends up with Jeff's cloak and tunic is going to go home and go, boy, those Christians are different. Well, what if it was the only thing he owned, the cloak and the tunic? Isn't he going to walk around naked? Again, it's hyperbole, exaggeration, for the sake of making a point. Are we still good with time? Yes, we are. Um, don't give him back slap for slap. Be patient as someone insults you. Um, the Well, we got a whole thing we could talk about with that. But back to the go the extra mile example. Matthew 27, Jesus is carrying the cross. Do you remember? He's so weak from being beaten and whipped, he just can't carry it anymore. He falls down. Whether he's carrying the whole cross or just the crossbar, scholars disagree about. But even the crossbar could weigh 100 to 175 pounds. With the weakened state he was in, he couldn't carry it anymore. Do you remember what happened? The Romans say to some guy, hey, so come here, Simon of Cyrene. Okay. Based on the name, it's thought he, this guy was a black man from Africa, Jewish, coming to worship. Carry the cross. Could he have said no? No. Okay. He carried Jesus' cross. That's, we could spend a whole night on that subject. But um, don't go that mile bitter. Go two miles with cheerfulness and grace. It's a privilege for me to serve you, sir. Wow. You people are different slapped him across the cheek. You want to do the other one too? Go ahead. Don't take insults. Look uh, 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 as an opportunity or 
a license to respond in kind. Who is the example? Jesus, whipped, beaten, slapped, insulted. He does not return that. At the cross, when he gets there, do you remember what happens? They take off his tunic and his cloak, both, which is seamless. It's like a designer garment somebody had made for him or given to him. They Remember, they gamble for his clothing, both the tunic, T-shirt, and the cloak. Interesting. Um, Jesus is told to go to the cross. He could have said, I'm not going, and I'm immediately sending all of you to hell. And he could have done it, but he couldn't do it because he wanted to die for you and me because he loves you that much. Why? Because he doesn't have a consumer relationship with you. He has a covenant relationship with you. The question is, do you and I have a covenant relationship with him? Listen, how could Christianity become a consumer relationship with God? I believe in you. I love you, God. Thank you for saving me. But do have some certain demands. We have a certain lifestyle we've grown used to. This is the career that I want. If you'll follow me and do this for me, I'll keep believing. But if I get cancer or if something bad happens to somebody in my family or one of my friends, all bets are off. I'm looking for a better guru elsewhere. Maybe Buddha or one of the Hindu gods. Or Is that your relationship with Jesus? Is it mine? Or are we in with a covenant relationship as the bride of Christ forever? Listen, regardless of whether he's not meeting my needs, regardless, I'm in for the duration. I trust you, Lord, with my whole life. Okay, we're going to pray because we're late on time. And I didn't cover everything, but we got most of it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could be in your word. And it's a high and lofty moral code that each of us, if we're honest, are not living up to. Not completely, but you want us to aim for it as high as we can in the power of your spirit, knowing that you love us in a covenant way. May we love you the same way. We, may we, if we're married, love our spouses the same way, our children the same way. We love you, Father. This is beyond anything we can do on our own, but by your spirit, all things are possible. Bless this uh, lesson in our hearts and minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know, or I'll make you say amen again. Those of you on, those of you on Zoom, thank you for being here. God bless. See you next time. <laughs>